0: Hello all and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the North Wales spare room based true crime show that each and every time looks to bring you tales of true crime that you may not have heard of, that may be unfamiliar to you, perhaps often even unbelievable ones, that I've collated from the nooks and crannies of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The world's smallest cow, Peaks, assists me in doing so, although he really does bugger all except chip in with his little bell now and again, which you may hear. But we do it for you folks, the wonderful enthusiasts that keep the show striding forward. It's as fabulous as it always is having you joining us here today, which we thank you kindly for doing so, and I hope that as you've joined us for this final episode of the series, then you've joined us all safe and well. So, before we crack right on with the second and final part of the Series 6 finale, The Good Samaritan, I must say firstly, big thanks go out to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout outs for new supporters Ross Mercer, Ian Uncle Meat Burns, fabulous name or what eh, Chantelle Gautier, Wayne Kennedy, Sarah Starr and Kevin Sheehan, plus Jane Truman, Susan Adams, Michelle Dutton and and proper blast from the past old friend of the show jason abercrombie who've each opted to annually support the show it's amazing of you to do so guys thank you it's so kind and your support means the world as ever now if you want to join these guys and get yourself a full series of extra enthusiasts with some right tales available there from to kill and kill again and the final straw through to predators in the park and new year's evil and with some more horrors over the holidays upcoming before the end of the year then to do so is a doddle there's a link to the show's patreon page always in the episode show notes or if that's way too easy and you like the a to b via x and m approach then if you head over to the patreon site and seek out the true crime enthusiast podcast there you'll find the show with the same logo and all that very straightforward and quicker than a new year lockdown coming, because it is coming guys, you can be hearing these and other tales for less than the price of a pint each time. So if you haven't heard part one of the series finale yet, it's probably best that you head over and check that one out first, but if you have and you're raring to go, just a quick recap. Last time around on part one of the Good Samaritan we were introduced to 20 year old India Eve Chipchase a Northampton woman who truly had the world at her feet. Dedicated and well liked her friends and loved ones described her as beautiful inside and out and that's a very fair summary of her that is. One night back in January 2016 India had an impromptu Friday night out with three of her friends around the pubs and clubs of Northampton and proper let her hair down, shall we say, having a few drinks and a bit of a dance, until by about 1am the following Saturday morning, she was feeling the effect of the drink she'd had and found herself separated from her friends and outside the nightclub they'd ended up at, with India by that time just desperately wanting to go home. And then, a good Samaritan came to her aid and promised to help her get home safely. From that very moment, sadly India was anything but safe by later that Saturday she'd been reported as a missing person and by the following day her body had been discovered at an address in the Stanley Road area of the town within 48 hours the occupant of that address 51 year old Edward Tenniswood had been arrested and charged with her murder and remanded in custody to await trial whilst India's devastated family and friends were left to begin to try to come to terms with their loss. Which is where we finished the last part, and where we shall take up the tale right now. For the upcoming account you'll hear, is one of the most unreal I've certainly ever heard, and I'm sure you'll agree when you hear it too. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including that of a sexual nature, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, for the final time this series, please join the true crime enthusiast for the second and final part of the series finale, part two of a tale I've entitled, The Good Samaritan. The trial of Edward Tenniswood for the rape and murder of India Eve Chipchase, case number T20167594 began at Birmingham Crown Court on Tuesday the 19th of July 2016 where he entered a plea of not guilty to both counts. At the trial onset through his legal counsel Samuel Stein QC Tenniswood complained to the court that during his remand period worse so after the opening day of the trial fellow inmates at HMP Woodhill in Milton Keynes where he was being held Had made his life hell and had threatened to throttle him after reading newspaper reports about the crime. Mr. Stein told presiding Mr. Justice John Saunders. By the time he got back to the prison, it was just after the news reports had been broadcast. From the response he got from other prisoners, he asked to go into his own cell and to be shut in. The door you can hear through and talk through. He himself was threatened with strangulation with other prisoners saying that they are going to get that sick bastard in the showers. He tried to hold up some paper against the pane in the wall to prevent people seeing him. He's spoken to the night watchman, and that meant he hasn't slept. The level of threat against him is very serious. He's one of very few Category A prisoners, and he's not the largest person, and is very vulnerable. We asked that some steps be taken to ensure he's not subject to any more threats and that he is to be treated as a witness would be in these circumstances. Doesn't your heart bleed, eh? Mr Justice Saunders agreed, wanting every step taken to ensure nothing was to stand in the way of the trial, like, for example, hospitalisation or prisoner murder or anything. And so Julie instructed Tenniswood's legal team to contact the prison governor concerning the matter, resulting in Tenniswood being kept in segregation at Woodhill for the duration of the trial. When proceedings did get underway the following day, counsel for the Crown, Christopher Donnellan QC, told the court, At 3.45pm on the afternoon of January 31st this year, the body of India Eve Chipchase was found laid out on a mattress, covered in a duvet cover type sheet, in a bedroom in Stanley Road, Northampton she was aged just 20 she'd last been seen alive one thirty a.m on the night before shortly after she'd been approached by the defendant as she stood outside nb's nightclub in northampton mr donnellan explained how india had been out with friends that evening who were not her closest friends but that she knew them well enough but became very drunk and separated from them he continued Her friends too were quite drunk and they did not think straight for themselves. Their recollections are affected by their own drunkenness. She ends up outside the club. A member of door staff assisted her from the premises and even assisted putting her in a taxi. He confirmed with her that she had enough money to get home and sat her in the taxi. The taxi driver said that India has to be taken home although the taxi driver was cautious. He was concerned about her being sick in the cab thus he asked her for payments up front, she became upset at that and he said he could not understand what she was saying. Whatever was said to her her reaction was to get out of the taxi, very sadly she got out of the cab and walked a few feet back to NB's, she then stands outside NB's and appears to use her phone but she ended up leaving messages rather than getting through to speak to anyone. The jury was also shown CCTV footage taken from the former Moon on the Square Weatherspoons pub in nearby Market Square where Tenniswood had been earlier on the night of the murder. Mr Donnellan said a witness in the pub who spoke to Tenniswood said he told her he was a mature student from down south and was writing a book. Mr Donnellan continued Some witnesses said he seemed to be using overlong words to describe things to make himself sound more intelligent. He concentrated on talking to two women and told them he'd been burgled. The court heard that Tenniswood had left the moon on the square at 1am and then made his way to Bridge Street. CCTV footage shown in court revealed Tenniswood wearing a duffel coat and carrying a rucksack arriving at NB's a short time later at one eleven 11 a.m but then almost immediately approaching India after he appeared to be refused entry to the club Mr Donnellan went on witnesses say India had been standing there crying it is the prosecution's case that the defendant closed in on that he saw India and went up to her outside like he knew her but he did not know her the defendant begins talking to her he was talking closely into India's face and made quite an intrusive movement towards her he took her by the arm and does not let go all the way through the footage he holds on to her left elbow with a fairly fixed grip witnesses heard him say to her not to worry i'll get you home safe he did not she was led by him or steered or escorted by him to a taxi which took her not to her home but to an area near stanley road The jury was then shown further CCTV footage of India and Tenniswood as they walked further up Bridge Street and then got into a cab at the top of the road. Mr Donlon continued that once inside the taxi, Tenniswood had initially directed the driver to take him to the McDonald's restaurant in First Riverside and then Sixfields, neither of which were in the direction of where India lived. Apart from one occasion when India said, "'Turn right,' tenniswood was the one who gave all the directions to the driver tenniswood had then asked the driver to stop at the bp garage on st james where the driver as isula then witnessed him get out of the cab and do something out of sight for three or four minutes the court heard how india tried to call her boyfriend grant Hare, three times when she was in the taxi but could not get through as well as sending snapchat messages, the contents of which were nonsensical. The journey continued when Tenniswood had gotten back into the vehicle, and after arriving at an address near Stanley Road, a witness had seen them go through Tenniswood's door. Mr donnellan said that it would never be known what happened in the house, as the defendant had not given any detail or explanation, but forensic evidence could give some suggestion a cigarette butt with traces of India's DNA on it had been found in a cup in the kitchen, as well as her palm and fingerprints discovered on doorway frames of downstairs rooms. Mr Donnellan continued, The evidence shows her death having occurred as soon as within an hour of her arriving at the house. We make that suggestion based on telephone connections. The last telephone connection made by the defendant was at o two thirty eight when he dialed the number for O2 customer services. Within 20 minutes of this telephone connection, the court heard. India had been raped and strangled by the defendant, causing her death. She appears to have put up a struggle because blood was found under one of her fingernails. It is the prosecution's claim that this blood matches the DNA of the defendant, continued Mr Donnellan. The cause of her death? Pressure on the neck. Why did he kill her? He alone knows what his motive was. It's very likely that his motive was sexual, that when she resisted him, he gripped her around the throat and squeezed until she could resist him no more. Her death was no dreadful accident, because obviously, had it been, the defendant would have called for an ambulance or started CPR or called for help. What he did instead was to remove her belongings and place them around the house. He'd put on a pair of clear plastic vinyl gloves to do so because they were later found in a bag of rubbish with India's blood on the outside of the gloves. The court then heard that later the same day Tenniswood was alleged to have murdered India. Instead of raising the alarm, he went to the nearby Ibis Hotel where he spent the best part of the next 22 hours hanging around the lobby drinking lager and coffee. The court was shown CCTV footage showing Tenorswood in the lounge area of the hotel where he'd stayed from 9.30pm on the Saturday evening again recorded at this time on CCTV entering until well after 3am the next day at this time also using a computer there where he was found to have accessed news reports concerning the search for India. At one point Mr Donnellan said police officers came into the hotel on a totally unrelated matter but said Tenniswood did not make himself known to them the prosecution suggests, because that by this time the defendant already knew a high profile search was going on. Tenniswood had returned to the Ibis shortly after 6pm on the Sunday, and on this occasion he was recognised and arrested, having been recognised hours earlier by an officer viewing CCTV footage that showed him in India entering a cab which led to the discovery of India's body at his home. Mr Donnellan continued, After he was arrested, the defendant said, You know who I am? I'm Edward. I'm surprised you were so quick. It didn't take you long to find me. He continued to be talkative and asked about the procedures for his arrest and how many police officers had been looking for him. He then told officers he'd spent the day getting his notes up to date, saying, I suppose you've been to the house and found what you're looking for. Of course, three hours before his arrest, police had sadly done just that. When he'd finished this opening address, Mr Donnellan then called, in a chronological order, a series of witnesses who gave evidence, the accounts of witnesses of the events that I gave in the opening part of the tale. So if it seems that I'm skimming through these quickly here, I'm not, I'd just be repeating a large chunk of the first episode if I went over them any fuller. Statements from Harry Moylan and Brandon Alford were read to the court, whilst India's friend Alice Lewis, who appeared in the witness box to give her account, burst into tears as she watched footage of the friend's final moments together. Grant Hare, meanwhile, who reportedly appeared as emotionless while giving evidence, described his and India's relationship being keen to stress that they were a quote not quite boyfriend and girlfriend and that he was unaware of the suggestion they had romantic problems telling the court of the missed calls and messages from that evening and his later attempts to contact India back door supervisor David Burry appeared to describe escorting India out of the nightclub and putting her into a licensed cab after ascertaining she had the funds to pay for a fare as well as the cab driver concerned Andrew Birkinshaw who told how India had stormed out of the taxi after being asked to pay up front it was at this point that the court was once again shown the CCTV of Tenniswood only moments later approaching a distressed India where following an interaction between them that lasted for a couple of minutes he then led her away and into a taxi further up the street this second taxi driver Azizula Miyagan, then appeared to tell the court, speaking through an Afghani translator, of his journey with Tenniswood in India, before some minutes later, he was followed into the witness box by Patrick Francis, who gave his account of seeing the pair walking down Stanley Road and entering a house there. The court was then shown the harrowing body camera footage taken from one of the police officers, who, the following day, had made the discovery of India's body as it was found, as well as hearing testimony from police officer Stephen Knight, the account that we heard in the previous episode. Statements from IBIS hotel staff Francisco Lino, Vicente Mendez and Victoria Salcheva were then read to the court, telling of their interactions with Tenniswood at the hotel, which described his movements from the Saturday night until his arrest the following evening. An arrest on suspicion of murder. Next were the findings of home office pathologist Dr Michael Biggs who'd carried out the post-mortem on India and who described to the court the pattern of injuries he'd recorded as well as a determined cause of death, saying There was blunt force trauma injuries on the face and neck region with compression of the neck. They were a pattern of inflict injury such as an assault. They were not consistent with self-inflicted injury such as a fall. According to Dr. Biggs, friction marks that were found later on Tenniswood's legs, visible scratch marks to the left side of his neck, and the presence of his blood underneath the fingernails of India, suggested that she'd attempted to fight him off after he'd gotten on top of her, and had attempted to rape her. Tenniswood sat in the dock, stared hard at the floor as Dr. Biggs gave his evidence. The various witness testimonies I've just listed here took up a few days of proceedings but on day five of the trial the court was given the first insight into the character of the accused with an account from Tenniswood's landlord Alan Freeman the owner of number six Stanley Road. Mr Freeman told the court how Tenniswood had moved into the property in January 2010 after he was put in touch with him via one of his other tenants. He described a bizarre character with an almost obsessive nature, one who even made notes of their conversations for later referral, and was hard to shake off once he started talking. He said, Sometimes we'd chat and he'd make notes, then call me back later. Sometimes it was very hard to get away from him. He would keep on talking and talking, and it would be quite hard to stop him, unless I wanted to be a rude person and walk away from him. I was never aware of any visitors he had. The only person I knew he knew was the previous tenant. He went on to describe that in the years Tenniswood had been a tenant of his, he had systematically almost destroyed the interior of the house, removing carpets and replacing them with layers of laid-down newspaper and comic books. The heating at number six was non-existent, the curtains were continually drawn, and there was only ever one light on in the house, a bare bulb in the upstairs front room, where Tenniswood admitted he contained himself to live in. The other rooms of the house, Mr. Freeman told the court, were filled with dust sheet covered boxes that Tenniswood said were stashed full of hoarded memoirs. There was nowhere in the property to sit down and socialise because all of the usual accoutrements of everyday interior living were covered up and pushed away then covered with plastic sheeting or cling film, even down to bowls and plates. When asked to explain this, Tenniswood had said, It seems illogical to keep cleaning it to use it. Instead, you just replace the cling film rather than go through the rigmarole of cleaning. Mm, yeah, I don't think I quite share your logic there, you dirty filthy bastard. But yet, for someone who seemed meticulous and obsessed with cleanliness, who was described as a compulsive hand washer, sometimes scrubbing them red raw, and who often wore latex gloves, which he regularly bought in boxes of 100 for three ninety nine pounds 99 from Poundstretcher, Tenniswood's house was actually squalid. Although Mr Freeman claimed that his tenant, I quote, wouldn't touch anything that was dirty, and was this obsessive, so bad was the state of the property that he'd previously given tenniswood notice on several occasions to improve its cleanliness by early twenty fourteen, perhaps aggrieved at seeing his property used like landfill, Freeman had ultimately decided to try to sell number six and to this extent had contracted a local estate agent to take photographs of the property interior leading to the widely publicised photographs of the house that if you head over to the show's Instagram page, you can see some of there, and that reveal Tenniswood's obsessive nature. Although in November of the same year, Mr Freeman had opted to remove the property from sale. Now in the previous episode, I described how following his arrest, neighbours of Tenniswood's in Stanley Road came out to describe how he was a loner who was rarely seen and when he was seen out he was usually drunk he'd even been arrested for it that january and as we've heard Kling filming your minging bloody house is not only pointless but suggests that this is already a bit of an oddball we're talking about here i'm sure you can pretty much agree already but one neighbor douglas Kalea, a neighbor who lived opposite him in stanley road was the first to recall to the court one incident that suggested that, far from just an eccentric yet harmless enough pisshead, he was also a bizarre fantasist, and a potentially dangerous one with it. Mr. Kalea told the court that on the afternoon of June 26, 2015, Tenniswood, whom he didn't know beyond merely by sight, had knocked on his door and had asked him if he wanted to go into Northampton Town Centre for drinks. Mr. Khalir had refused this as he didn't know Tenniswood well and further because he believed him to be already drunk at the time. He continued. He said that I was wonderful and that I had a wonderful family but his behaviour was odd as he knew nothing about us. He kept cupping my face with his hands and telling me how wonderful I was and he was quite insistent about coming into the house. When Mr. Kalea had pushed him back when Tenniswood had tried to walk into the property, perfectly acceptable actions to stop a drunken stranger staggering into your home, Tenniswood had reacted instantly. Mr. Kalea went on, He suddenly put his hands out in front towards my neck area. He put his hands around my neck as if to strangle me for about five seconds, but didn't apply any pressure. Tenniswood had then allegedly told him, I've been in the army and been trained to kill people with my bare hands. Mr. Kalaya said that before he managed to get Tenniswood to leave, he'd also told him that he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder after serving in the army in Afghanistan. So much had this incident unsettled Mr. Kalaya due to its bizarreness that he'd recorded the incident in his diary, hence him giving such a recollected account. And, the court was to hear, Mr kalea wasn't the only person Tenniswood had reacted like this with in such a way that suggested he had a nasty violent streak. Also given evidence on the same day, this time via video link, an unnamed woman described how, some years before, she'd become involved in an argument with Tenniswood, which had rapidly become heated, and to which he had reacted as follows. He ran at me and pushed me up against a wall and put both his hands around my throat. He was holding really tightly and then tried to kiss me on the mouth. Mr Donnellan asked the woman How long did he hold you like that? To which she replied Probably about 20 seconds. I tried to push him off. He would not let go but eventually he did. He said he was sorry and I got upset. She told the court however that she'd never reported this incident to police or a GP and it was only following reports of Tenniswood's arrest on suspicion of murder that she'd made a statement concerning it. Now 20 seconds is quite a long time to hold someone in such a way and to try and force your attentions upon them isn't it? Just count to 20 in your head to see. That's frightening eh? Now what the argument was about isn't reported but the fact that according to her account he immediately attempted to kiss her as he had his hands around her throat suggests that this violent reaction most likely was in response to a sexual rebuff. Which is exactly what the prosecution suggested had occurred in the early hours of the 30th of January of that year after a predatory tenniswood had lured an extremely drunken India away by posing as a good Samaritan and something which the accused was to categorically deny when he was to give evidence on his own behalf beginning the following day, on day 6 of the trial. His testimony was to prove quite remarkable, and is given here verbatim as much as possible. Smartly dressed in a suit and shirt, the unemployed 52-year-old initially appeared confident when he stood in the witness box, although significantly, He firmly avoided eye contact with anyone in the public gallery or the press area. He began by describing to the court his lifestyle, his habits and his home, saying I drink at least two bottles of red wine a day, bordering on three. I also have the affliction of obsessive compulsive disorder, where I have to keep washing my hands. I got to the point where I was washing my hands so much they were red raw. I started buying boxes of latex gloves from Pound Stretcher in town, three ninety nine for a hundred. The court heard that he lived in a small area of his house that made it easier to keep clean, and used sheets to cover his furniture, to keep dust off and make it orderly. He continued, the landlord was completely stripping out the place with a view to renting it out or selling it. In the interim, he allowed me to stay there. I had a month's notice. It had no carpets and no handrail on the stairs. I put newspapers down on the floor as a way of soaking up wet feet. It then escalated and two pages became four and it effectively grew to become a temporary carpet. Although Tenniswood admitted he was a terrible hoarder, he said he used crates to store some of his belongings because he was in a permanent state of having a month's notice and so wanted to be ready to move if need be. He was then asked by Mr Donnellan about the pictures of famous women pinned up on a wall of his house, which Tenorswood explained thus. I'm always hoarding magazines and newspapers, clip-ins. These individuals are extremely similar to ex-girlfriends of mine, rather than just have the whole place covered in dusty dust sheets, the ornaments, memories of ex-girlfriends. There's Helen at the bottom margaret there heather is the bridal picture and annabelle there is another one i'm lucky enough to have had some very attractive girlfriends is that a crime nothing more interesting than that asked about clippings of the then four-member uk girl band little mix that had been found in his kitchen tenniswood replied that's little mix he described them as i quote quite plain but he was Impressed with the job that the photo stylist had done on them. I'm probably going to get sued by Little Mix now. If you want to say they're attractive, then yes, yes, they're attractive, he admitted. Another picture found in Tenniswood's kitchen was of fashion model and former Vogue cover girl Heather Stewart White. And when shown the picture, Tenniswood told the court It's not actually her that, but a model who is very similar to her. I haven't had an immensely successful life but I'm lucky enough to have had some very attractive girlfriends one of whom was a very successful fashion model. She's called Heather Stewart White. I dated her at the end of the 1980s bordering into the 1990s before she went off to New York. She got married to Yannick Noah. Yes, seriously. But Tenniswood was adamant that they'd had a relationship saying I've got documentary evidence to prove that. I've got photos with her lipstick on, for goodness sake. I wouldn't make something like that up. My ass, she wouldn't. And incidentally, in the wake of this claim, Heather Stewart White was to later issue a statement categorically denying any relationship with, or even ever having knowingly met, Edward Tenniswood. So by now, do you get the impression that we're talking about a bit of a fantasist here? But someone who, at least they think anyway, can explain themselves out of anything, however much bollocks the explanation may sound, and sometimes by admitting their own pathetic faults with mock shame. Eventually, Tenniswood was then asked to recount his version of the events of the 30th of January of that year. He explained to the court how he'd gone out on the evening of Friday the 29th of January with the intention of going to O'Neill's pub in the drapery and having a meal and a few drinks there, but was to be disappointed. That is when the evening began to fall apart. I got there expecting to have two bottles of wine and a meal, but the kitchen was closed unfortunately, he told Birmingham Crown Court. Undeterred, he then headed over to the Moon on the Square pub, but was unable to get any food there either, as the kitchen had also closed, Tenniswood said. This was the second disappointment of the evening. Clearly, I was not going to get any pub food tonight, but I'd learned to sublimate food by drinking and smoking instead. He then stayed in the pub, where he claimed he'd only drunk two pints of cider, and where he'd soon struck up conversation with a group of three men and women who he had never met before. He then moved off with this group after the pub closed, heading on to the Boston Clipper on College Street, where they ultimately decided not to go into, as they didn't want to pay the entrance fee. He had instead headed over to Bridge Street with one of this group, Russell Minns, who Tenniswood claimed was becoming, in his words, Very irritating. He kept saying to me, Can I come back to yours? I thought it was obvious that I was not that way inclined, but I'm quite overpolite, so I put up with it. It was arriving at NB's, he claimed, where he first came into contact with India Chip Chase when she was standing nearby to the queue he was in, and whom he began speaking to after he was refused entry to the club. Tenniswood admitted that he knew the duffel coat he was wearing was not suitable clothing for him to be let into NB's while wearing, but said he tried because he was, I quote, the world's greatest optimist. He said he'd last been into NB's ten years previously, but was then shown CCTV footage that the prosecution alleged was him, dressed the same and looking the same, trying to get into the very same club at two fifty one AM, two weeks before the murder. Tenniswood denied outright that he was the man in this footage, and extending his hand, even offered to bet Mr donnellan a hundred pounds that it was not him. Referring back to him meeting India, Tenniswood said, I think she said, You've been refused too. She appeared to be very intently on her phone. She seemed anxious. Whatever it was, it was making her unhappy. I saw her wipe away a tear at one point. Tenniswood said he then asked India where he could get a drink in the area, but he said they both concluded there was nowhere open that would not charge them an entry fee. India then had a tearful outburst, causing Tenniswood to put his arm around her. He explained, I felt sorry for her. I'm a tactile person. I put my arm half around her in a paternal way. I said, I'm sure it'll be okay. Everything will work out. I probably said you'll get home. It was a general attempt to calm her down. Tenniswood said that after talking to India for some 15 minutes, he estimated, a lot longer than the CCTV footage denoted them talking, they had developed a bond outside the nightclub. We both later said how spooky it was we'd just clicked, he described. It was enough for him to then make an off-the-cuff comment to India, saying, Well, I'm going to get a cab home and have a drink at my place. You're very welcome to come if you want to. Tenniswood continued. She looked up. There was a half smile. Her whole demeanour had changed from somebody who had been crying. He claimed she said yes, and they got into a taxi together. They both decided to then go to McDonald's in Sixfields, but had then changed their mind, and he instead directed the taxi to stop at the BP garage in Westbridge, where he'd bought cigarettes and a lottery ticket. After the taxi had dropped them off near his home and they had walked to his front door, Tenniswood said he was chivalrous by opening the front door and letting India go in first. He went on. I said, are you okay? She said, yes, can I use the loo? So I said, of course. A little quirk of mine is that I like to put on the cold tap to mask the sound of people urinating. It is slightly embarrassing if you can hear someone weeing in the next room. Tenniswood said as she was in the toilet, he filled two glasses with red wine and said that when she returned, India's demeanour was improving by the minute. He said, She seemed more alert, more normal. She wasn't crying and upset like she'd been before. However, he'd then gone to the toilet himself, and when he returned, India seemed to have taken a backward step. She seemed serious, unhappy. It seemed like something to do with a phone. She ranted about her mates and said, Fuck them all, and they're all shits. She then lightly tossed the phone onto the floor and motioned towards it as if she was going to kick it. That was pretty alarming. My initial response was to rescue the phone. I'm an Apple technology geek, and the idea of someone smashing an iPhone is something to be avoided. So I picked it up and held it aloft. Tenniswood then claimed he held the phone to the heavens and said, We are sorry, Steve Jobs. He went on, We both laughed. She looked up and she said, Yes, we're really sorry, Steve. When then asked about the injuries to India's face and neck, Tenniswood denied inflicting them and said instead that they'd been caused when she fell while they were downstairs in his house. Tenniswood described how India had fallen over after attempting to sit on a sofa covered by a dust sheet, saying, She sat on this cushion, not the rigid part of the sofa, and to our mutual embarrassment, as follows, it couldn't support her weight and she fell backwards. I made a desperate attempt to arrest her fall, but to my shame, she slipped through my hands. She tried to grab my arm, and her right hand was on my neck. I said, are you okay and she said really sorry she thought it was her fault we were gushing with mutual apology i was saying i'm sorry she was saying she was sorry i said i'm more sorry then she said she was more sorry india had then touched a mark a scratch on his neck and he flinched when she did so and had asked him if she did that they both apologized to each other repeatedly once again Then hugged, and then Tenniswood claimed it got, I quote, silly. He went on. She said, I'm definitely more sorry, and that's when things took an unexpected turn, because she planted a kiss on my lips. I was so taken aback, it was so unexpected. I was surprised. It was a full-on French kiss. Any sort of first kiss, I personally would never give a French kiss. I reciprocated, I suppose, if that's the term. He said India then went into the kitchen and got the two glasses of red wine he had poured before following him upstairs after he'd promised her the grand tour of the house. They both went into the front bedroom of the house, where Tenniswood said that India then became fixated on the large mirror he had in there. A photograph of the room in question is available on the show's Instagram page. After they sat down on the floor Tenniswood said India then made an incredibly moving comment to him continuing India said wow I love that mirror the two of us were framed in it and she said it looks like we're in the middle of an oil painting and then she put her arm around me and she squeezed almost like we were posing for a selfie I waved and she waved in retrospect it was an incredibly moving thing, it was such a sweet India thing to do, I could easily have fallen in love with her. This last comment, which bizarrely suggested a much deeper knowledge than he possibly could ever have had of a woman he'd met only an hour before, drew audible gasps from relatives of India, her aunt and uncle who were sat in the public gallery. India's parents and siblings being too devastated still to attend. It was a comment that stuck in my mind, this did, and I shall give my thoughts concerning it somewhat later. And if that were to shake the family as it did, who knows how the next account from Tenniswood must have made them feel, as he continued, I looked at her and said, India, and gently kissed her. Tenniswood said she then reciprocated and it developed into a proper kiss. She then took off all her clothes herself before he and India had sex. During sex, Tenniswood claimed India moved his hands onto her neck and, demonstrating to jurors what he'd indicated by placing his own hands around his neck in a rubbing motion, told the court, It was a very organic thing, As I'm kissing her, she puts her hands on my hands and moves them down. She put pressure on my hands. She was initiating, effectively getting me to start the pressure. I got the hint that it was clear when she pushed onto my hands that I was to continue pushing. The pressure on my hands stopped as my pressure continued. She released the pressure, but both of her hands stayed on my hands. He then said, India said to me she'd not felt this happy for ages. In retrospect, that is just awful. would claimed that he and India had sex twice and during the second time, he applied pressure on her neck for between 5 and 10 seconds without her guidance. Under cross-examination from Mr Donnellan, he explained about the second occasion when he'd placed his hands around India's neck. She moved her hands down onto mine and put my hands on her neck again. As I did, she applied pressure and then I continued to apply pressure. As I did, she took her hands off and put her one hand out above her and her left hand down to her side. I just continued applying the pressure and then... Now at this point, Tenniswood sat with his head and his hands in the witness box where, with his face covered... He breathed deeply for some five minutes before continuing to get his story straight, he claimed. He then added, What was different to before was that she closed her eyes as I continued to apply pressure and moved her hands off my hands. I was applying pressure for between five and ten seconds. Her body spasmed and she let out this extraordinary exhale. Obviously, in my over-eagerness to please her, I sustained the pressure for just too long. No disrespect to India, but I was unguided and inexpert an at what I considered a mildly kinky sexual practice. Through sheer inexperience and incompetence, I kept the pressure on too long or too firmly or both and in retrospect, that caused a death. Yeah, how do you think hearing something like that would make her family members feel? When asked by Mr Donnellan if he realised the next day that India had died as a result of this Tenniswood said he had no idea she was dead until he woke up next to her lifeless body. He told the court I was so fatigued I had effectively blacked out. When we woke up, sorry, when I woke up it was early evening. I was surprised I'd slept all day. I was surprised we'd slept that long. I lit a cigarette as I naturally do. Again, to my shame, the first thing I did was to pour myself a drink of wine. I just assumed she was in a deep sleep. Following his cigarette and his drink of wine, Tenniswood said he then became aware something was wrong with India, continuing. I became aware she wasn't snoring. I went over and looked at her and it just didn't seem right. I said, India darling, you okay darling? I nudged his shoulder. Now that you mention it, the paleness of the skin would be something that made me think something wasn't right, something was wrong. When it became obvious that something was very seriously amiss with India, Tenniswood told the court. Panic set in. However, his first action in this panicked state, instead of bothering to check for a pulse or to summon for assistance, was to down another drink of wine with him explaining, I decided not to do that on the grounds I'd never taken one before. I thought, what is that going to do? Is that going to upset me even more or answer any questions? I ruled out feeling the pulse and returned to have another swig of wine. Oh, yes. The court heard that Tenniswood was unaware India was not breathing and he assumed she was still alive because there was no stiffness in her joints. He then claimed to have got dressed and decided to look in her bag for any medication she may have had, as he believed that she may be diabetic and in a diabetic coma, or that he also feared she may have had a stroke or a brain injury from a drunken fall. Finding nothing to suggest this, Tenniswood claimed that panic set in once again, And he then went into his default mode by getting everything in order, hence the reason he had stowed India's clutch handbag and boots neatly together in another room. He had then reclothed India, to be respectful, he said, had turned a light on and turned up the volume on the bedroom radio, and put fresh sheets on the bed, as well as removing and binning a pillow that had blood on it from a head wound later found on India, claiming it was long overdue to be thrown out all this while tenniswood claimed he was convinced that she was still alive saying she was floppy as i expected her to be if she was in this semi-comatose state i thought if she was dead she'd be stiff but she was extremely flexible however perhaps not grasping the magnitude of what he was saying tenniswood then remarked almost complained if you like it's a traumatic experience when dressing a body yeah i'll just leave that out for there for a second shall i justice john saunders then intervened asking tenniswood why did you put all her clothes back on what would have been embarrassing about her not having a gilet on it was just because she probably would have been disorientated tenniswood replied Tenniswood then admitted he, I quote, needed some fuel for his brain and to breathe some proper air and so decided to go out, leaving the house with this unconscious young woman still inside. He added, I was completely convinced she was still alive and merely in some form of coma. I made some decisions to get some air, get food and calm down. I was absolutely convinced she would gain consciousness while I was out. My optimism is unbelievable. I'm just one of the world's greatest optimists. That allowed me to continually believe India wasn't dead. At this point, Prosecutor Mr Donilon, almost angrily, outright accused Tenniswood of deliberately killing India, saying You knew she was dead from the moment her face started to show the the particular hemorrhages as you grabbed her around the throat. The little blood vessels bursting under her skin as they filled with blood under the pressure of your grip. You knew from that moment she was dead. Tenniswood merely denied this, yet did himself no favours and won himself no sympathy whatsoever when he claimed that his next action, instead of basic first aid or calling the emergency services, was to instead venture out to buy a kebab from a shop in the town centre. Planning to come back to the house in about 20 minutes. It was a decision Mr. Donlon fiercely criticised, saying, All that time there's a girl lying on a mattress, potentially needing urgent medical attention. You didn't feel guilty about that? Tenniswood replied, Clearly, it was just this optimism of mine. I just thought she wasn't dead. What had been a glorious evening suddenly turned into this awful situation. It was just utter panic, just confusion, and I was groping for some small answer. I wish I'd left a note that said, India darling, I'll be back in 20 minutes. Love, Eddie. He then said he characteristically stopped at the Ibis Hotel for a drink, but then ended up staying there, admitting it was totally stupid, and maybe due to anxiety that he thought he would have a drink, and come up with the answer about what to do. It was sheer panic. The court heard that Tenniswood then spent the majority of the next twenty two hours panicking in the IBIS until he was arrested at six forty three PM on Sunday, january thirty first. During which time, at three twenty two AM that Sunday morning, he'd used a computer in the hotel lobby to look at BBC Northampton website. Out of habit, he claimed, and had then clicked on a local newspaper link concerning the search for India Chip Chase. Tenniswood admitted that he did leave the Ibis at one point to go to a nearby BP garage to buy cigarettes, and that he did then walk to the end of Stanley Road, but then bottled it and didn't walk back to the house, admitting also that he did not instead phone for the emergency services to be sent to his house. He said, I was hoping against hope that she was not dead. It was poor judgement not being able to deal with what had happened. Something that had never happened in my life before. I just could not understand how someone wouldn't come round. When asked why he didn't call an ambulance, he said it was, Bad decision making on a monumental scale. My mind was in a state of utter mental flux. No shit was it prosecutor mr donnellan then told tenniswood you've developed a fantasy account of your interactions with india from the time you met her and after she arrived at your house you've got a 20 year old drunk girl in a taxi what are you going to do when you get back to your flat i hadn't actually thought forensically what i'm going to do i wanted to get home have a drink she was a drinking companion tenniswood responded Mr. Donnellan then asserted that Tenniswood had the taxi the pair were travelling in drop them off some distance away from where he lived so the taxi driver would not know where you were going with that girl. I refute that allegation entirely, Tenniswood replied. Mr. Donnellan then shifted his questioning from the alleged murder to the rape of Miss Chipchase. You were kneeling either side of her. You managed to get her trousers down and then you raped her. In order to have sex with her, you only had to take her trousers off. You were trying to take them off when you were on your knees and she was unconscious. And she strangled you and you managed to get her trousers off and you raped her. That's how you got those scratches on your neck. Tenniswood refuted this allegation as well. Mr. Donnellan then continued, The truth is, you started to rape her. And she tried to fight you off. She scratched your neck and made you angry. You grabbed her around the throat. She fought. You then squeezed harder. You wanted to hurt her as she'd made you angry and would not willingly give you what you wanted. You squeezed your bare hands around her neck until she stopped breathing. You knew what you were doing. This is what you intended. Tenorswood refuted this. No, no. no, he said. In the final part of his evidence, on the 8th day of his trial, Tenniswood said he'd not given an account to the police when he was interviewed on February 1st, the day after India's body was found, because he'd been advised to say no comment by his solicitor. The same reason that Tenniswood had also declined to say anything to officers when he was interviewed on April 12th after he'd been charged with India's rape. Tenniswood admitted that whilst awaiting trial, he'd been given a chance to read all of the witness statements related to his case, including the pathology report detailing India's injuries, but was to categorically deny when Mr Donnellan put it to him that he'd used the information picked up in the report to develop a story about the conversations he'd had with India even taking offence to such a suggestion. Unreal, eh? Now, as a defendant who had twice given no-comment interviews to police, this had been Tenniswood's chance to give a contrite, honest and dignified explanation of why he believed he was innocent of murder. But from the beginning of his evidence, it soon became clear that Tenniswood was a narcissistic fantasist, he was uninterested in offering a shred of remorse for his actions, instead, without a flicker of emotion unless it was concerning him, tenniswood gave evidence as if he were on a stage as if he was reliving everything and appeared to enjoy the audience. He was also argumentative with the judge and barristers and frequently became angry whilst giving evidence. Another tactic he frequently used was his refusal to answer. Yes or no questions directly, and instead to go off topic in long, convoluted sentences, despite repeatedly being told to keep his responses short, and which were also filled with tasteless and inappropriate detail, such as suggesting bringing a dummy into court to illustrate the point he'd made about hands around the neck, or the fact that the day he met India, he said he had drunk so much his body contained more wine than blood. Judge Saunders repeatedly had to tell him, just answer the question. Tenniswood strived throughout his evidence to describe himself as a gentleman and not a creepy man who always had India's best interests at heart, whereas in fact he needlessly and deliberately added to the torment of India's grieving family and friends, ensuring that intimate details of India were heard publicly in court and due to his insistence even having the video played to the jury depicting the moment her body was found in his house but perhaps the worst aspect of his evidence was his casual use of the phrase that was such a typical India thing to do a suggestion of such an impossible knowledge of her that it provoked an audible gasp from her relative sitting in the public gallery so visibly upset were they by Tenniswood's graphic testimony that at one point Mr Justice Saunders even asked jurors to leave the courtroom and this is someone who claims he had nothing but chivalrous intentions towards India and her best interests at heart. Let's see what the jury thought. In his closing speech prosecutor Christopher Donnellan told the court after he was arrested The defendant was interviewed and made no comment. answers to all questions apart from saying he knew where Bridge Street was. He gave no explanation or account of the incident. Only recently as the defendant indicated the issues at trial. He admits sexual intercourse but denies rape. He says India consented. He denies deliberately killing her and said it was an accident during the course of sexual intercourse. Don't believe a word this defendant says. You saw the police officers go into his house and you saw Tenniswood being arrested. He showed no sorrow or regret for what he'd done to India Chipchase. Not one word of it. It was an accident or it was kinky sex gone wrong. All you've heard from this defendant is his own self-pity. The worst of it came when he said it's very traumatic dressing a body. He described the trauma to himself not the awful trauma to India, whose life had been squeezed out of her by him. He knew she was dead, he knew he'd killed her, he expressed no sorrow for killing her, but only talked about his own panic and predicament once he'd killed her. Mr Donlan told the jury Tenniswood did not want to admit he was attracted to India, continuing, He thought it was outrageous of me to suggest he was interested in sex but he did not have the same outrage when I suggested he knowingly killed her. He just refuted that. Mr Donland described the account Tenorswood gave as a fantasy and said, It is impossible to know what happened in that house. He can't be believed and she was silenced. It's garbled nonsense to suggest this girl suddenly sobered up and had a bit of a chat about Steve Jobs. He used the phrase, typical India. What a peculiar phrase, what a delusional phrase. He met the girl at 1am, blind drunk. How does he know her? How does he know what is typical of India? But the phrase is a disturbing one and tells a disturbing story. He has, in that remarkably short time, decided in his mind he has some sort of relationship with her. But he didn't say a word of this in interview. We suggest he has deluded himself, And is trying to pull the wool over your eyes about what he did the most deluded suggestion is that he did not realize she was dead we suggest he could not have not seen that she was not moving not breathing not even shallow breathing he overpowered her knowing that if he gripped and continued to hold and hold it would kill her there can be no doubt he did grip her firmly around her neck the fact that she had a mixture of his DNA and hers under her fingernail on her right hand that matched a mark on the left side of his neck indicates they were facing each other. It strongly points to her fighting for her life, a situation far from the consent in sex he claims. He even decided to shift the blame onto her that it was some sort of masochistic event. Mr Donnellan then told the jury they must convict if they found Tenniswood had the intention to cause grievous bodily harm or death, saying The deliberate act of putting hands around a smaller, lighter woman and keeping sustained pressure to render her unconscious and then keeping that pressure for a while longer so no oxygen could get to her blood would have only one result, which the defendant knew only too well. That is death. Closing the case for the defence, which had offered no witnesses, Samuel Stein QC told the jury He is an oddball. He is a man who is infuriating because he cannot and does not stop talking. It does not help to warm to Edward Tenniswood that he was older than India Chipchase. He was not as drunk as India Chipchase. He was obviously very drunk. Whichever way you look at this, he did take the life of a young woman but why did he redress her? Why did he tidy up after her? Why did he keep the duvet away from her face? Why did he put her shoes and bag away? Why didn't he get rid of anything? Why didn't he run away? These are the actions of an oddball who is probably unable to understand that she died while they had sex. Which one of these actions suggests he is seeking to get away this awful crime? On Tuesday the 2nd of August 2016 Edward Tenniswood held his head in his hands and stared at the floor after following a 10-day trial the jury of six men and six women delivered a unanimous verdict of guilty of the rape and murder of India Chipchase against him after deliberating for just one hour and 48 minutes. At 2.30pm that afternoon tightly flanked by four security guards He stood in the dock once again, and could not make eye contact, knowing what was coming, as Mr Justice Saunders passed sentence upon him. Firstly, however, the judge addressed India's relatives in the public gallery, saying, I have heard moving statements made by both India's mother and father, in which they tried to describe, in words, the extent and depth of their grief at the loss of a much-loved daughter, and for any reason that is a tragedy but to lose a daughter in the way that India's parents did is unimaginable. The loss is not only felt by them, but by all the family. It is right that the court and the public should hear of the consequences of this defendant's actions and the devastation that it has caused to other people's lives, but it must be remembered that no sentence I pass can or is intended to compensate for that loss. There is no sentence I can pass, that can fully compensate for the loss of India. This was a terrible crime. It was committed because the defendant was determined to satisfy his own sexual desires on an attractive and much younger woman. It was a crime of utter depravity. She was obviously so drunk she was unable to care for herself. I have no doubt that he was very persuasive and convinced India in her befuddled state to come home with him, promising her that she would be safe she was vulnerable and he took advantage of her vulnerability he didn't take her home in a taxi as he told her he would instead he took her to his house and there he raped and killed her no one can say exactly what preceded the rape and the murder but i am satisfied that india remained extremely affected by the alcohol she'd consumed when the crimes were committed While I cannot be sure he went to the nightclub to try and find a vulnerable woman that he could use for his own satisfaction, I am satisfied that as soon as he saw India, he formed that intention. I am satisfied that he did intend to kill, and while he does present as a strange man, I have no evidence that there was some mental illness that might lessen his responsibility for this awful crime. The judge then went on to condemn the nature of Tenniswood's defence, saying it had undoubtedly added to the anguish of India's family, and his lack of remorse gave him no credit. He said that the only mitigating factors were the fact that Tenniswood had no previous convictions, and that at aged 52, he would therefore be in prison while most other people are in retirement. It seems to me that what limited aggravating and mitigating features there are cancel each other out said the judge tenniswood was then sentenced to life imprisonment being told he would serve a minimum tariff of 30 years before ever being considered for release he said nothing in response to this instead remained staring at the floor as it sunk into his warped mind that he would be 82 years old if he was even still alive by that time before ever being considered for release before being taken away to begin his sentence. Following sentencing, Detective Chief Inspector Steve Wallitus said that Northamptonshire police had carried out a thorough investigation of Tenniswood's past, including excavating Tenniswood's garden, but had found nothing at all, leaving them confident that India was Tenniswood's sole victim. He described Tenniswood as an absolute fantasist who dreamt up a whole succession of events. Tennis Wood's predatory actions in the early hours of Saturday 30th of January have left India's family totally devastated and I want to take this opportunity to publicly express mine and the force's condolences to them. India's family and friends have shown great strength and courage in the last six months as they've tried to come to terms with what has happened. And I also want to thank them for their help and patience during the course of our investigation. India was a young woman at the start of her life who should have been able to enjoy a night out with friends and return home without coming to any harm. It is clear that Tenniswood targeted India at a point where she was most vulnerable and unable to defend herself. The actions of the worst kind of predator. The worst kind of predator indeed. India's devastated mum Suzanne meanwhile described the hole that was left in the family by India's death being quoted as saying miss my daughter more than words can express but she will always be with me she was such a vibrant person and there was never a dull moment when she was around she lit up a room whenever she walked in and remembering that will always make me smile her death has left a huge void in all our lives and her siblings are quiet and subdued without her. Even though we'll never experience a smile, a laughter, or a caring again, her photographs will adorn our walls, the memories will live on, and her spirit will always be in our hearts. This year, she should be celebrating her 21st birthday. As a family, we will not be able to do that this year, or any year to come. By the actions of this man, we have been condemned to a life sentence of grieving for a child whose potential we will never see. Nothing that happens to that man will be enough to fill the void and pain that he has caused to our family. India's father Jeremy, meanwhile, sat by a family photo of India, said I sincerely hope there's no possibility that another woman ever falls into the hands of my daughter's murderer. No other father will have to see the daughter's body in the mortuary and be told they are unable to touch or kiss her one last time. No other father will have to touch the coffin and say Love you Ind and see the curtain close in the crematorium. No other father will be hit with a wave of emotion at a wedding as I was, realising I would never walk India down the aisle. I'm sure that I and other family members will continually have moments like this of pain anguish emotion until we take our last breath therefore i reiterate i do not want there to be other victims at the hands of india's murderer Nor other family should experience what we have unbelievably powerful words heartbreaking that eh? but there was to be no hole left in another family with tenniswood's imprisonment nor any notable hole left in the community with his absence, because the picture that was to emerge of him following his conviction was that of a lifelong loner, an oddball, who had been estranged from his family for many years. Very few details are available for research concerning Tenniswood's life, but it can be established that he'd been born in April 1964 in the town of Marlborough in Wiltshire. He's not reported as having anything other than uneventful schooling, though it is reported that it was here that he first developed his obsessive nature, becoming a member of a community of close-knit comic book fans. This, along with hardcore pornography, were obsessions that Tenniswood maintained right up until his arrest for murder. It was also around this time, late in his schooling, that Tenniswood had begun to establish himself as somewhat of a fantasist, claiming variously to have fantasies of being a spy, and telling people, whoever would listen to him really, that he'd been chosen for selection from school to join the SAS. Later, this became MI5. Now actually, he was no more Bond than I am, for when he left school, Tenniswood spent the majority of his employed life as a bookkeeper, as well as working for a time in his father's successful and lucrative furniture store. However, in the early 1990s, his family had disowned him, after he'd stolen some £260,000 of his father's money and used it to buy a top-floor flat in the sought-after Chelsea district of Oakley Street, a flat that's reportedly worth in excess of a million pounds today. Here, the already oddball loner, who had begun heavily drinking even by that time, found himself in a desirable location with several famous neighbours, Reggae star Bob Marley had briefly lived on the street in the 1970s, and Manchester United legendary number 7 George Best was also a neighbour, living there up until his death in 2005. In fact, Tenniswood and Best were reportedly drinking partners at the nearby Fiend Arms, today renamed simply the Fiend. It was the place where George Best had in 1995 proposed to his wife Alex, and one local resident was later to claim, after Tenniswood's conviction. George was in there all the time, the pub became famous because of him. Tenniswood was known as Eddie, and was a strange, quiet man. I saw the pair of them in there together quite a bit. But arguably, an even more famous resident, and George Best is already pretty legendary to have as a neighbour, isn't it? But next door but one to Tenniswood at number 89 in the 1990s lived the star man himself David Bowie who reportedly regularly held orgies whilst he was living there bedding women and men on a four foot deep bed nicknamed the pit in the living room. Now there's no suggestion that Tenniswood knew Bowie or took part in any of these orgies although he would probably have been unable to resist claiming to people that he'd been shagging with Ziggy Stardust, such was the fantasist that he was even back then. Tenniswood was forced to sell the property, however, when his father discovered how it had been bought, which led to the family disowning him completely and to what must have been the relief of his neighbours. Following his conviction, the partner of the buyer who had bought the flat from Tenniswood told the Daily Mirror newspaper, he was more than just a loner, he was properly odd, There was all kinds of pornography all over the house when we went to look at it. Tenniswood indeed was an unpopular tenant whilst he lived there, and was marked by everyone who came into contact with him as a strange, odd and nocturnal man. A former neighbour who'd lived directly below Tenniswood in Oakley Street, James Burgess, was even stronger in his description of him when he said later, I never saw him with anyone else, no girlfriend or friends. There was definitely something wrong with him, he was a strange fellow. Eddie was a nasty little shit who made our lives pure hell. He was the main reason my wife and I sold our flat and moved away. It was a smart Victorian building, very swish, but from the moment he moved in, he was troubled. Just about every day, at all hours, he'd be banging around, smashing walls down to do it up. We and the other residents complained to the council, but it didn't help. Eddie was abusive, and he just rode roughshod over any of our concerns. Even after all this time, when I heard that he'd been arrested for murdering a young woman, it didn't surprise me. By all accounts, following the estrangement from his family, he moved back in with his mother Ursula for a time. Now whether this move is what led to him living in Northampton or not is unsure. Although reportedly, living back with his mother came to an abrupt end as well, when she was forced to take out a restraining order against him. Though again, for what reason this was, isn't reported. And that's been a real frustrating part of researching this tale That has, as there's the best part of bugger all to research about Tenniswood apart from vague snippets and suggestions that you find like this but from what there is available what a proper bloody oddball and happy families indeed eh so he'd certainly based himself in northampton for several years prior to his arrest where as we heard he eventually moved into number 6 stanley road and then systematically went about destroying the interior of it making it squalid and like a serial killer's wet dream all the while behaving as bizarrely as ever. One local woman, Joanna Conway, said of Tenniswood, It's scary to think what happened there. He would answer the door wearing a blue and white striped pinafore and blue latex gloves. He was just too odd. He was a glove-wearing weirdo. He was just known as the local oddball. Nobody thought he'd be a killer. His former neighbour, James Burgess, did, though. And another person who it didn't surprise at all was a woman who could not be named for legal reasons, but who knew Tenniswood from years before, although in what context is not revealed, nor can it be confirmed if this is or is not the woman who gave evidence at his trial. She described a controlling man, violent and abusive when drunk, and that alarmingly, on several occasions she had woken up, I quote, and found eddie having sex with her on one occasion police were called by the woman resulting in tenniswood being arrested for a fray although she neglected to press charges against him and he was released now whether this was while tenniswood was living in chelsea or northampton cannot be determined but it's alarming information that had to be kept from the jury at his trial in case it could be deemed prejudicial to the case Whether or not this is the same person concerned as I've just mentioned here, but it transpired after his conviction that Tenniswood had been arrested by Northamptonshire police for a third time in January 2016, this time concerning a rape back in 2005. He'd been released on bail concerning this allegation on January the 19th, and by 12 days later, had not only been arrested a further time for being drunk and disorderly, but had raped and murdered India Chipchase. It emerged that the 10-year-old allegation against Tenniswood had first come to light in March 2015, but, as quoted in the findings of a later IPCC inquiry, consideration of his arrest was recorded in June that year, but, after several unsuccessful attempts to do so, he was not arrested until the 18th of January 2016. He was then released on police bail pending further inquiries, and a number of items, including digital media, were seized from his home during a search. So, questions were asked as to whether Tenniswood should have actually been in custody at the time of India's murder then. But the IPCC report found Northamptonshire Police's response in relation to India was prompt and appropriate, saying... India's mother reported her 20-year-old daughter missing on the 30th of January 2016 and police initially graded the report as medium risk. It was escalated to high following additional information received and police viewing CCTV footage from outside a nightclub in Northampton which showed India being approached by a man. Inquiries led police to force entry at the home address of Edward Tenniswood where India's body was found and he was then arrested at a local hotel the following day. The IPCC investigation examined the actions and decision-making of police after India's disappearance and found risk assessments and inquiries were made promptly and appropriately. The IPCC Associate Commissioner Guido Liguoro added, I would again offer my condolences to India's family and friends for their awful loss. While the police investigation conducted in 2015, for which Tenniswood was a suspect, may have been progressed more swiftly, there is no clear basis for concluding that would have led to him being in custody at the time of the murder. Changes in the way Northamptonshire police managed detective resources and officers' responsibilities were found to be a primary factor in the length of time taken to achieve the arrest. At the time, four systems in place led to some resources being diverted towards domestic violence investigations, and the IPCC found no case to answer for misconduct against the officers involved. We've shared our findings with Northamptonshire Police to help them improve practice in specific areas. And Northamptonshire Police has since reviewed its resourcing and allocation procedures to prevent delays. Just in the nick of time, eh? Or is that me being overly harsh? Now, while perhaps Northamptonshire Constabulary could not be said to have let India down, even though nine months before arresting an identified suspect in a rape is pretty shocking, criticism was levelled in the wake of Tenniswood's conviction at both NB's nightclub and the taxi firm, who advocates of changes to existing policies concerning revellers and these did claim were somewhat responsible. NB nightclub's own website states, I quote, It operates a zero tolerance towards binge drinking. It urges its clientele to consider their state of health before a night out, and reserves the right to refuse entry at all times so they were completely within the law to refuse India re-entry that evening. However, it was pointed out and argued that it also advertises on the same website, conversely from this, loads of shit-sounding cocktails, I quote, drinks starting at just a pound, and it asks its punters, are you brave enough to get delirious with us? Rachel Griffin, a spokesperson for the Susie Lamplu Trust, said, Nightclubs and bars, which profit from people going out and having a good time, have a duty of care to their customers. This should include having a policy of looking out for people who may have become separated from their friends, or those whom others may seek to take advantage of if they appear vulnerable. It is also today commonplace for taxis and minicabs to ask for upfront payments to protect drivers from unpaid fares, although this practice has been banned in several places because it's viewed that it could put vulnerable people at greater risk. Miss Griffin continued, We've called for a long time for more standardised national practice for taxis and private hire vehicles, so that passengers know what to expect when they use them. It has to be safer for passengers who believe they are taking the safe option of getting a taxi or minicab home, to have the confidence that they won't be turned away if they can't pay in advance or that they will be able to stop to get cash on the way home. Now nobody has cash on them nowadays, so paying for a taxi up front and by card is quite commonplace. However, drivers do have the right to refuse to take anyone who is under the influence, as well as to request payment up front, depending on how drunk a person is and the risk of them being sick in the cab, or the possibility of fare dodging. Though it is claimed through all sources used for the episode that India herself chose to get out of the cab, objecting at being asked to pay up front, which it also claimed was ascertained that she had sufficient funds to do, so maybe a bit of unfair flack there, but even the Sun newspaper came under flack and which is always warranted as ever when it chose to highlight the amount India had drunk as a headline when reporting the story, tweeting. Woman drank six Jager bombs in ten minutes on the night she was raped and murdered. Now, I've said before how much I despise the Sun newspaper. It's a vile publication, and I wouldn't even line the bottom of Pixie's litter tray with it. And tweets like this don't help, do they? The fact of the matter is, it wouldn't matter whether she drank Brasso, Meths, whatever, what she drank that evening, or how much she drank has nothing whatsoever to do with events. India isn't dead today because she had one very drunken night, as the headline would infer. She's dead today because a predator called Edward Tenniswood happened to be in that queue outside NB's nightclub. On the evening of 25th of November of the same year, Northamptonshire Rape Crisis Centre held a well-attended memorial walk for India through the town that culminated at All Saints Church there, before a minute's silence for her. This was to be the first act of a lasting legacy that India has, as her mother later spearheaded the safeguarding scheme Northampton Guardians, which aims to protect women when they're out in the town, with volunteers patrolling the streets to protect vulnerable women who may be on their own. Similar schemes have been instigated in other places, including in Cheltenham, where a safeguarding initiative named the India Protocol, designed to increase the safety and security of women within a nighttime economy environment, is now in place, assisting the emergency services there. Now, it's surely a worthwhile scheme that sh- there should be no question in it being introduced everywhere, as sadly, High profile events of this year have shown us that there simply isn't enough safety on the streets for the vulnerable. And the way I think, whatever keeps people feeling and being that much safer can't be a bad thing. Get some genuine good Samaritans out there. A link to find out more about the India Protocol can be found within the episode show notes. The predator that is Edward Tenniswood will more than likely end his days behind bars. He's never appealed his conviction or sentencing, seemingly accepting today of his life sentence. So the streets are that tiny little much cleaner and safer today. And also today, number 6 Stanley Road has a new owner. It's most likely cleaner than it has been in many years, and it will have been carpeted too I'm sure but there were initial calls for it to be raised to the ground in the wake of India's murder. One resident, following Tenniswood's conviction, was quoted as saying, it needs to come down as soon as possible and be turned into a memorial garden or something. Perhaps the new owners will be unfazed about living somewhere that such horror that occurred not too many years ago, because some people can just do that, can't they? But to many of the close-knit community who have lived around the area for many years, they will simply never forget, and to them, the address will have become as infamous as Rillington Place or Cromwell Street is. For the same resident was also quoted in the same article as saying, It's the house from hell where the devil himself murdered an innocent woman in the prime of her life. And how'd you ever really not associate somewhere that evil has occurred with it forevermore? I ask you. I found India's tale to be a heartbreaking and horrendous one. What an extremely chilling thought that a predator such as Tenniswood was out there, an opportunistic one, and to put the poor girl through who knows what. We sadly are likely to never know for certain, except what the hard scientific facts tell us that she was raped and strangled what i found bordered on the obscene was the fantastical account of the evening that Tenniswood gave at his trial of how this was almost some love at first sight relationship that developed over less than two hours mind you and the line that got me that really angered and sickened me the most i think is him saying it was such a typical india thing to do outrageous it's simply despicable that isn't it For him to suggest such intimate knowledge of the woman he'd killed less than two hours after meeting her, and for poor members of her family to actually have to hear these claims in court that this was some act of gentle and passionate lovemaking gone tragically wrong. Now what crossed my mind was, did he really believe this bollocks in his befuddled mind? We've heard how much of a fantasist he was, inventing fictitious relationships with former vogue cover girls? or how he'd claimed to have had military training, and how he would claim to anyone who would listen to him that he'd been in the secret services, when really, the fellow was such a sad loser and a pathetic piece of work that he wouldn't even let him into bloody S-Club 7, let alone MI5. But did he go over things like this in his mind so often that, in a warped way, he began to believe that these things were real, and if so, having months on remand before his trial? then what else is he going to think about and hone except such a rich account of that evening? I was unsurprised that other accusations of rape or violence towards women have been levelled at Tenniswood, because this is a clear predator in the true sense of the word, and behaviour such as that begins somewhere, doesn't it? You don't suddenly decide to lure a young woman home to your cling film-covered hovel with murder on your mind, and there's no way on this earth that the clouds of any drunken haze suddenly part, and it was all instant hearts and flowers on the part of India, and she abandons all reason and sense to go home with some scruffy weirdo. It's complete nonsense, that is. I could well imagine that there may have been other women he's attacked before, though most likely, these attacks have not been reported, perhaps sadly, have been committed against other heavy drinkers. And merely put down to the actions of drink. I would not imagine, though of course I can't say with any definition, that he'd killed before, for he made no attempt really to flee or to dispose of India's body. Had he resigned himself to the enormity of what he'd done, and there were indeed fragmented elements of truth to his account, that he had panicked, that he'd opted for his crutch, alcohol, but had only panicked for himself. When he realised what the consequences of his actions would be, Tenorswood isn't saying, instead, perhaps he's come to really believe the fallacy that he gave in court, and he really genuinely today believes that this is simply something beautiful gone wrong. Well, he has the effective rest of his life to think about the injustice that he may believe has fallen upon him, because he'll not be sparing a thought for India whatsoever, and in fact, Forget about Tenniswood, because he's where he deserves ending his days, he really is. Instead, think about a young woman named India Eve Chipchase, who did nothing except enjoy a night out and let her hair down, as should have been her right to safely. Until the wrong good Samaritan came to her aid. And with that, Series 6 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast comes to an end which has definitely been both my favourite series to have done to date, as well as the most challenging one so far. I'm bloody knackered from the end of it. But it's been my privilege to bring you the tales that I have done. Now I won't go into the full ins and outs here, I shall save a full wrap-up of it for the review of the series that shall be out in a few days, just as soon as I get chance to sit down and gather my thoughts about it. But what I shall do is bring this episode to a close with a bit of a message from myself. A bit of an extra special end of series message to you all. It was fabulous to meet some of you at this year's CrimeCon UK as well. I'm sure that if you went, then you had a right weekend there. I know that I certainly did alongside some of the other UK show hosts. Made a lot of new friends there and it was a real highlight. Now I'm back down in London for the next one in June of 2022 so I can't wait to see some more of you all down there over that weekend then, because it's sure to be fabulous as well. I dare say, as we crack on with the next series, you'll probably hear me mention it a few times, because I'll be proper looking forward to it. We also have several exciting things coming up with the show in the year coming, and just a bit of a heads up in case you don't already know, but for reasons unseen and unpredicted, the first book from the show will be a bit later coming out than anticipated. But it is all done and rest assured I will endeavour that it will be out sometime in some form in 2022. All I can say is that these things happen and if the last couple of years has taught us anything, you just can't predict what's around the corner can you? But we carry on. The first few episodes on the next series of the show are all sketched out in my head although in what kind of running order they'll go, even if they'll stick to what I've sketched out, who can say I don't even know myself just yet. But expect the usual boxes all to be ticked for the next run. I'm sure there'll be a couple of multi-parters. We shall definitely get back to a listener-written episode next time also. I'll do this bloody true crime holiday episode I've mentioned before at some point, and of course, we'll have a multi-episode arc. That subject I've already chosen. But before then it's time for a bit of a break and a recharge and it's proper wrap-up time here. So from myself and Peaks, I wish all of you and your loved ones a great Christmas and all the very best for the year coming. Let's hope it's a damn sight better for all because this one has been yet another bastard of a year that I hope the door hits hard over the arse on its way out. I also, as I say each time around but especially here, I wish to pass on my express thanks to each and every one of you for all of the listens, the shares, the feedback and the suggestions for cases you've provided this year. Without sounding like a broken record, the show doesn't exist without you lot listening in because you make it, you really do. And from the bottom of my heart, I thank you each so kindly for doing so and for getting the show into Series 7. It's been amazing and you each rule. For the final time this series then I've been I still am and hopefully still will be Paul the true crime enthusiast wishing you all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon I'm looking forward to coming back shortly with series 7. Take care all and stay safe out there and because it's the final episode of this series as has become tradition now all that remains for me to say is don't have nightmares and do sleep well. Goodbye for now. Speak to you soon, guys.